Open your copy of the Scriptures, would you, to 1 Peter chapter 3. Put a finger on verse 13. With your other hand, grab your journal and your pen. Find page 16. Now that you're fully uh, uh, doing a lot of things, I want you to think with me about what we're looking at this morning. We're going to be diving into God's Word and looking further still at how to respond when we are reviled for righteousness. And this is not the first week that we've looked into this general theme or subject. I remind you, this began probably back mid-chapter 2. And so in multiple ways, on various fronts, different avenues, Peter has instructed us, he has exhorted us to think about our posture when we are wronged, when we are maligned, when we're reviled, when we are in situations that we cannot control and we're being called upon to have this posture of humble submission, like that's difficult, it's hard. And so Peter's been addressing this, I think in, in multiple ways, just continuing to reinforce that this is the general posture of God's people, whether it be between masters and servants whether it be in marriage to the civil government or perhaps even in the general culture or the church body. The general posture is that of humble submission and in times when we can control the outcome and it's not against God's word, it becomes very difficult at times to do this. But this is our calling and he lays for us. In fact, this is how Christ even lived in those moments. And so he's continuing to kind of beat this drum, we'll call it. Now, I want you to be aware of something, that the human nature tends to do this in moments when we hear something over and over, or we discuss something in a residual fashion, when we stay at the table about a topic and we continue to delve into it and rip it apart and look at it, the human nature tends to complicate things. Do you know that? Like, this is so basic, and you've seen it, maybe you've not thought about it, you experience this when you go eat some places, like... I was just by a zombie burger recently. They have about 20 hamburgers. Like, I just wanted to get a hamburger. That's not complicated. But now I'm looking at 20 options for hamburgers. And that's not including the grilled cheese or the chicken sandwiches, right? If you stop by the new place, uh, Slim Chickens, some of the names of the sandwiches there are four and five words long. Like, I just came for a chicken sandwich, but I got to make sure I get the right one. So we have a tendency to complicate even things that don't matter, like food. There's no sin or wrong or right in that, right? We just, the human nature, when you stay at something long enough, you tend to complicate it. What I love about this next section, while we're in the same general theme, is that Peter actually uncomplicates it for us. In one phrase... Peter simplifies well over a chapter and a half, and even still some to come. He, he brings it all down to one phrase. And it's my prayer this morning that as we look at these five verses, that you'll glean and gather much, that you'll eat well this morning from this buffet of these five verses, but that you'll leave also with just one choice morsel and nugget. That you'll meditate and chew on that all day. Like This is the goal. What do you say we discover that together, asking the Holy Spirit to help us learn how to respond when we're reviled for righteousness and what's at the core of this and what's the simple posture we're to take. It's verse 13 of chapter 3. Follow along in your Bibles with me, would you? Peter would write this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, who is there to harm you 
if you are zealous for what is good. And I think what he's driving at here in this opening question, and it's somewhat rhetorical, even in the next statement, is that in the normal course of life, we don't typically get persecuted, maligned, reviled for doing good. For being, and I think this word typically refers to the humble posture of submission. He's saying that's not the normal course of life. It's, nor, it's out of the ordinary when you get punished for actually doing right things. And so just be aware, I think that's our situation as well. I mentioned this in the very first week in this whole theme, that often we, we seem to focus on the rarely what ifs as opposed to what the normal situation is, that we're not really called upon much to humbly submit in difficult times. It's a rare occasion. But Peter here is just making that case. It's, it's, it's really rare. You don't get harmed really for doing what's good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness's sake, there he says, if it were to happen, you will be blessed. Now that word comes from the previous section. Stan spoke about it last week. You'll notice it mentioned a couple of times in the last uh, verse, verse 12. Uh, always, excuse me, excuse me, uh, verse, um, verse 10. You see it mentioned a couple of times. The blessing is, of course, that God will take care of you. That even in times of immediate injustice, the blessing is that God brings ultimate justice. And so we trust him. You can see this in verse 12, that the eyes of the Lord and his ears, they're for his family, they're upon his children. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So though in the moment you may be being persecuted, for righteousness, you may be in that rare moment of suffering for doing something that's good and for, uh, for what's right. The truth is you actually will be blessed even if you should suffer for righteousness. So don't give up. Don't mistrust. And he says next, this is why you should have no fear of them. Them referring to those who would persecute you for righteousness' sake. Don't fear them and don't be troubled Remember, you're blessed. God will bring ultimate justice. So don't fear, don't be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. When this occurs, you'll always be prepared to make a defense. The word there is the word apologetics. You'll be able to give a, an answer for the uh, reason, uh, for the hope that's in you. So a, a well thought out, intentional, grounded, reasoned answer for why you have hope, why you consider yourself blessed when really you're in the world's eyes, you're getting a raw deal. Like how, how can you think and live that way? How can you take this posture and it looks like, like this is completely unfair and unjust. You can explain in a reasoned way why you consider yourself blessed. And he says, you'll do this with gentleness and respect and with a good conscience. Here's what that's meaning. When you have a good conscience, a clear conscience, it's, it's like saying that your actions and your words are matching. So there's not a violation in your conscience, a, 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 a hypocritical moment. You're like, you know what? I'm living this way. I'm believing this way. So my conscience is clear. I'm not living in opposition to things that I actually uh, hold and value. Your conscience is clear. And Peter here is saying, when you have a, um, uh, this posture, then your, your answer for why you're living that way, it, it fits. It's congruent. So your conscience is clear. You have gentleness, respect. So that when you're slandered, now he again, he again here kind of repeats himself. Look at the text. When you're slandered, 
those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame or put to silence or, or, or brought to no kind of, of reason. In other words, you have a reasoned argument. You have a good apologetic for why you think and live the way you do, even in these difficult times. And when they see that, they have nothing to say to that. Four, verse 17, somewhat repetitious of the beginning. For it's better to suffer for doing good, even though it's rare, that's better. Notice the next phrase, if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. The, the implication is this, if you're suffering for doing evil, none of this really applies. You don't have a reasoned answer. You're not blessed. You won't be gentle and kind. In other words, this doesn't apply if you're actually getting the due punishment for your dumb, stupid actions. But if actually in the rare moment that you experience persecution and malignment and reviling for doing righteous things, consider yourself blessed and that's actually God's will. So take heart, Christian. The posture of humble submission, of just being willing to endure the things you cannot change and trusting that God will bring ultimate justice, even in moments of immediate injustice, he says, that's better. That's, that's an amazing thought, isn't it? That's better than trying to get your way in an evil fashion and skirting around maybe what God's will is and thinking, well, at least I'm more comfortable now that you're actually in a worse case spiritually. It's better to be in God's will, even if that means suffering and enduring immediate injustice, because God says he'll bring ultimate justice and you are actually blessed. An amazing set of verses, isn't it? Now, if I were to actually draw these verses out for you, to revisit the sandwich illustration and the burger example, I see this set of five verses, kind of like a sandwich, with the top bun being verses 13 and 14. Just draw these in your journal somewhere. When you die, your kids get your journals. They'll love seeing this picture of a hamburger, right? Here's the bottom bun. I think it's 15B through about 17. Here's why. Because both of these are very external. The language in 13 and 14 and the middle of 15 forward to the end of 17, it's all either about what's happening to you or what you are then doing in response. It's very external language. Just check the text. You'll see that I'm right. It's just, it's just all about the outside. Nothing wrong with that. It's factually accurate. Here's what's happening to you. Here's how you should respond. And right in the middle, the meat of the text, or from a vegetarian friends, the tofu of the text, or the impossible burger of the text, right? Watch this. It's right here. It's verse 15a. This is where the beef is for those who remember the 80s, okay? <laughs> it's this phrase here. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This is the uncomplicating, simplifying phrase that Really, not only these five verses, but much of the section around it, it all swings and hinges on this. When this occurs, and hear this well, hear this pastorally. I'm preaching to me, I'm preaching to you. When this occurs, you will take a posture of humble submission because you've already taken it internally. 
You've submitted to Christ the Lord in your heart. And so you'll, you will then, to his delegated authority in whatever arena it may be, you will submit to that. You see, church, this is the issue. Have we set apart Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts? Don't you love the way Peter uncomplicates the whole issue and just simplifies everything? Let's take a closer look at that phrase, can we? The phrase here in the SV, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. We draw the idea of honoring and the idea of holy. Just connect these two, would you? It's the word from which we get the word sanctification or to set apart. It means to differentiate, to prioritize. It means that something is unique and special in a place of its own. The Bible here is calling us to set apart Christ, to prioritize, to uniquely, and the word is most technically, sanctify Christ. Now, how is Christ sanctified? It's a good question. It simply means he's, he's prioritized. He's um, elevated. He's differentiated. He's distinct. And we're to do this in our hearts, meaning here the core of who we are, that seat of our lives where, where everything really kind of comes to a, uh, to a point. This is the real us, the inside, at the seat of your life. You're to differentiate and set apart Christ the Lord. Notice he uses the Old Testament name, for Jesus, the Messiah. Peter here is clearly letting us know that Jesus is the long-awaited fulfillment of all that God promised. He's the Messiah, which means he is Lord, Kyrios. Now, this is an interesting phrase. I think it's the simplifying, succinct, and I think hinge phrase in these five verses, as well as this, most of this section. And Peter here is saying, when you do this, You'll then be able to endure immediate injustice. You'll be able to give a well-reasoned uh, apologetic for why you live that way. It'll be gentle. It'll be respectful. I mean, all that's demanded of us externally, when this matter is settled internally, you're good. Like, this is the core issue. And when we struggle externally with authority, Humility, submission, those types of things. My guess is generally it's because we've not settled the matter internally. We probably struggle with Christ's authority. This is why Peter brings his readers to this crossroads of what's going on internally at the seat of your life, at the core of your being, have you differentiated and set apart and prioritized and uniquely realized Jesus Christ is Lord of my life? To help you kind of process this singular simplifying phrase, 
Let me read for you how it's rendered by other translations, because I know we have different ones in the room. Here's how the New American Standard says this phrase. It's the most literal. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And so some see this idea of Christ the Lord, meaning he is the Lord. And so because of that, you should see him as the Lord of your life. Here's how the New Living Translation renders it. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. The NIV would say, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And the New Century Version says this, respect Christ as the Holy Lord in your hearts. And so whether through the ESV or these other four and other ones, in fact, you're going to arrive at the same destination, no matter which journey you take through these words in this singular simplifying phrase. And that's this. For you to handle the external pressure that exists in many moments, you have to have already settled this internal decision. Who is Lord of my life? And Peter here calls upon us to make sure that we have settled this issue, that it's Jesus Christ who is the Lord of our life. Essentially, this is a call to exclusive allegiance. Will you say the word allegiance with me? Allegiance. This is what Peter is after. Singular, exclusive, vertical allegiance to personally, as I said, differentiate and set apart Christ Jesus as your master and Lord from all others. And to realize, quite frankly, that he is the supreme authority and every other authority is a delegated authority from his authority. It's Matthew 28. It's to realize and distinguish Jesus Christ as the sole ruler, king, and authoritative voice in my life over everything I have and everything I am. That's what this verse is pointing to. It's the core of this entire section, and it empowers us to actually respond righteously when we are reviled. Why? Hear this, church, because we know that Jesus has not only commanded it, we know that Jesus has modeled it. We go back to 1 Peter chapter 2 where Jesus lived out the very thing he's calling us to do. And so when we see Jesus calling for it and modeling it, what do we say? Our unequivocal answer is, yes, I'll do the same. He's the master. And you'll say that when you settle the internal issue first. It's all about internal allegiance. That's why I think this simple sentence will summarize this set of five verses. That internal allegiance to King Jesus is what precedes and produces external action for King Jesus. Now, I want to remind you again of the immediate context. It's about suffering, enduring, um, uh, ridicule, malignment, uh, those types of things when you do good. So he's saying... If you want to be able to have the right kind of external responses for King Jesus in those moments, you'd better settle internally your allegiance to King Jesus. But can I say to you, this principle applies really even just generally. Wouldn't you agree that even in other issues, other, other decisions, other moments where we have to make, um, uh, we're at a crossroads, every external crossroad is simplified when you've settled the internal allegiance of your life, whether it's a money decision, a relationship decision, when you settle who is the master of your life, who's Lord, 
man, the external actions fall into place. So when you say this simple sentence with me, which summarizes well, I think the five verses, the middle singular simplifying phrase and all that's attached to it. Say this with me, church. Internal allegiance to King Jesus is what precedes and produces external action for King Jesus. Now, when we don't fuel and filter our external actions by our internal allegiance to Jesus, or you can say it like this, when we don't make sure that surrender is the first step before suffering and service, when we avoid surrender or allegiance, we fall prey to some ditches and dangers. I would say this, they're actually temptations to sin. And they're in the text. So let's keep our nose there for a minute, can we? You may have missed them. They're not just implied, they're actually explicitly stated, but we kind of read through them and we don't think about them being ditches and dangers. And I think what Peter is saying is, look at verse 15 again, the beginning part. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This is the core phrase. But if we don't do this, watch. What's right before it will happen. We will be afraid. We will be troubled. The word there's anxious. And can you just say amen to this? Because in our culture, here's the core issue. Too many of us are more afraid of the culture than we are of God. And so what do we do? We get troubled and anxious. We forget we're actually blessed. God will bring ultimate justice. We should work for justice, yes, now. But when it can't be reached, when we're futile in our approach, when things just don't go as we think they can and we're out of our options, we still can trust God that he'll bring ultimate justice so we consider ourselves blessed and we don't fear man. But too many people actually fear man. They fear culture. They fear if they're gonna be liked or disliked or retweeted or approved or thumbs up or whatever. And so, and so that affects in how we speak. And so we become, uh, you know, uh, so afraid we're tiptoeing through the tulips and we have more fear of man than we do of God. No wonder we feel trapped. Proverbs says the fear of man is a trap. And when you refuse to honor Christ as holy in your hearts, you'll find, first of all, fear and anxiety will begin to grip your life. Look at these other ones that are listed here. You'll find that you won't speak with gentleness and respect. In fact, you'll be harsh You'll be disrespectful if you do speak. My sense is often what happens is when we don't honor, the Christ, honor Christ as Lord in our hearts, we actually become silent. So think about this. Here's some ditches. Fear, anxiety, silence, or even slowness to speak. When we do speak, we're harsh or disrespectful. And then lastly, of course, there's this idea of a bad conscience or hypocrisy. What we say and what we uh, believe aren't matching up. We say one thing, but we do another. And so we have this mixed conscience, so to speak, this unclear conscience. Now watch this. Every one of these temptations begins with doubting God. Like, well, I, I don't know if I'm really blessed. I mean, I know the word says it, but I don't know if I can really take a posture of humble submission and consider myself blessed. Like, and here's what you need to know, church. Every sin and a temptation to it, every one of them starts with an assault on the authority of God. Every time. Remember the garden? What did Satan say to Eve? Did God really say? 
And when you're in a moment where you have to take a posture of humble submission, when you can't change what's happening and you have to endure it and it's unjust and unfair, you're being mistreated and maligned and there's nothing you can do to change it, the devil will say to you, did God really say you're blessed? You don't feel real blessed, do you? I think God's lying to you. And he'll try to plant seeds and doubt in your mind that will cause you to sin, to be fearful, anxious, harsh, disrespectful, hypocritical, silent. Do you see why it's so important that we honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts? Are you with me? I mean, it settles several issues and keeps us from these kinds of dangers and ditches. Here's what it does for us in a positive sense. When we do operate out of our internal allegiance to Jesus as Lord, I think the text says two things happen. First of all, we suffer well, and that's the overall sense of these five verses, so well that even in our suffering, even in our humble submission in times of immediate injustice and mistreatment, that those who are doing it can't even explain why we would live and respond that way, and so they're put to shame. That's well, uh, that's suffering well, church. But also we speak well. Look what he says, this idea of having a, a reason for the hope that's in us, this idea of apologetics. A lot, a lot of folks love this, this phrase and, and rightly so. You know, providing a reasoned answer for why you believe and why you act the way you do. But it comes when you first of all settle in your hearts and separate and set apart Christ as holy. And you won't suffer well and you won't speak well if you don't first of all internally settle the allegiance issue. So this is why this matters so much. It's what helps you avoid at least five or six sinful ditches and dangers and actually enables you to do two things the world is watching and listening for. Let me give you an example of how this looks, how this internal allegiance issue actually precedes and produces the kind of external action that the world is watching and listening for. I won't mention her name, but one of our members just two weeks ago shared this story with me. It's a, it's a tremendously powerful story. I was actually at another of my offices. I have two other offices in the city, Chipotle and Chick-fil-A. So I go there quite often. I was there with Julie um, and this FFC member was going in, and so she stopped by to chat for a bit. We're talking, and she said, she said, Todd and Julie, I just had the most amazing conversation. I think it was the day before, but she goes, my heart's still really just rejoicing, and yet it's just, uh, it, it, was, it was scary because it was with my neighbor, and she had come over again, and we're talking, and for some reason on this visit, she just jumps right into a lot of topics and situations involving sexuality and marriage and gender I suspect it was because it's June and there's all these topics on the radar and, and they're just all over everyone's, uh, you know, social media feeds. And so she just begins to kind of question me like, hey, what do you think? What do you believe? And, and almost in a kind of a cornering way. And she said, Todd, I was, I was feeling pressured. And she said, I just said to her, well, it's really not what I think. She goes, as a follower of Jesus, the Bible sets the groundwork for me. And she said, that just lit the fire. It got more intense. She said, so you believe? And she began to lay out all the things that, 
She's assuming Christians believe, which many of them, by the way, were right. Do you believe marriage is just between a man and a woman? You believe that, that uh, homosexual relationships are wrong? And, and she kind of came at it, and then she began to say things that aren't true. Like, so you one of those haters, huh? And, and I'm not, I don't want to be funny here. I'm trying to help us understand the culture and how we can engage with gentleness and respect and change the narrative that they create about us sometimes, right? And she said, I was feeling really pressured and cornered. There was this temptation just to say what would make her approve of me. But she said, I just keep coming back to this. She said to her neighbor, she's listen, I don't, I don't make the rules. I don't write them. I'm a follower of Jesus. So I'm just bound to obey them. I'm not mad at you. I don't not like you. I don't hate you. But Jesus is my Lord. And so I do believe the Bible. And, and every time her neighbor would kind of escalate, she just kept coming back to like, it's not about me. I, I just want you to know I'm a disciple of Christ. Like I'm bound to the Bible and God has given us his word. He's given us absolutes and she said, Todd, the conversation lasted 30 more minutes. Isn't that good to hear? I mean, there were, there were two people diametrically opposed, still at the table conversing, and this FFC member was gentle, kind, giving a reasoned answer. I thought it was beautiful. She said, Todd, to be frank with you, the conversation uh, didn't end with us agreeing on about anything. She goes, but it ended with us being friends. She goes, I feel like that day I was a friend and I was faithful. Isn't that beautiful to hear? And my mind went right to this passage as I was, you know, kind of had in my mind already just thinking through. I thought, that's, that's what this passage is. That lady, that young mom had settled internally something already before the conversation ever took place. Jesus is Lord of my life. That did not remove the fear immediately. It did not necessarily cause the the pressure or the sense of being cornered to disappear, but it gave her a reasoned answer in the middle of it because fear isn't, you know, always just uh, all your weird feelings dissipating. Often courage is just the presence of boldness in the face of fear. And so she just kind of continued to take humble steps forward saying, my posture is one of humble submission to God's word. I don't, it's not my call to make, I don't override God. I'm a follower of Jesus, so I'm bound to his word. I love that answer. It just deflected. Like it, you know, what your issues are with God, with his word. I love to talk with you about those, but I'm not your enemy. You know why that could happen the way it did? Because she had settled her internal allegiance. And though she felt pressured and cornered, and though she probably didn't want to lose an opportunity, she was not going to let the fear of man be more important than her fear of God. And I'm more convinced than ever today that when we settle our internal allegiance and we set apart Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts, when King Jesus is Lord of our life, then externally, man, our actions will represent that in a much more biblical and better fashion. Now, in light of that, let me make some pointed and painful uh, excuse me, applications. Can I? A few of these, and then I'll land the plane. And I think, first of all, in the church, this affects us greatly. I'm going to be the captain of the obvious here. Bear with me, but I'm really good at that. <laughs> 
just calling out what is, all right? When we set apart Christ the Lord as holy, when he's Lord, then certain things are no longer a debate. They're not a, something we have to think, okay, like, should I do that? Like, let's just take baptism. We saw eight people get baptized last week. There are more here who either are recent Christians and are thinking, well, should I get baptized? Let me answer that for you. Yes. Because Jesus has commanded that as the first step for new believers. If you've never been baptized by immersion, can I encourage you? The only biblical pattern we see in the Bible, the only one is not baptism of babies. It's not a sprinkling. It's not... um, Uh, never being baptized. It's always this pattern in the Bible, conversion, immersion. And usually they follow pretty close together. So you may have stories from people you knew in the past or other churches. I'll be happy to hear those. I'm going to go back to one story, the Bibles. And the Bible's repeated pattern on baptism is this. You're saved. You're baptized. So If you've been saved, if you're a genuine Christian and you're thinking, well, I'm not sure I should get baptized, that's really the wrong question. The right question is, when can I get baptized? And when Jesus is Lord of your life, when you've set apart Christ as holy, guess what? In all pastoral frankness, you will. Let's think about giving our resources, being involved in community, such as small groups, not living in an isolated fashion within a body. You know, Jesus Christ calls us to community. At First Family, community is our small groups. In the Bible, the New Testament especially, there's 150 uses of the words one another. And the vast majority of those can only be fulfilled in a setting much smaller than this one. So we encourage you, we really exhort you to not just enjoy, and we're glad you enjoy the large group, but to really invest in a smaller group. So come out from the shadows, reject isolation, actually be willing to be known and know others. It can be difficult at times. There are moments of tension, disagreement. You have to learn how to kind of let love cover a multiple offenses. Are you with me, church? I mean, forgiveness oils the wheels of church. I would much rather you experience that and see what Christian love is really all about than to stay perhaps back and say, well, I don't wanna take any chances. No, Jesus calls you to community. So the question is not, will I get in a small group? The question becomes, when can I join a small group? Or giving of our resources. Ones with time. Here we're talking about resources. You know, we have a great commission to obey. Let's get the gospel to the whole world. That means us locally. That means globally. We've got multiple families in the mission pipeline. Some you're not yet aware of that we'll be introducing soon, Lord willing. We've got multiple conversations even on the radar now about Uh, future church plants. We've got all of you, of course, investing in your neighbors and your co-workers in conversations. I mean, we are an outreach-focused church. We want to make disciples who make disciples. Our main goal is to develop devoted followers. And so for that to happen, we have to not only be invested in time, but also with our finances. Are you giving sacrificially to the church? As you read the New Testament, the pattern of the New Testament believers is sacrificial generosity. So is that the trajectory of your life? You say, Todd, I'm only giving a little bit now or I'm not giving anything. Address that in your life. Be willing to put everything on the table for the sake of God's mission and God's glory. If you're a sender, then structure your budget to where that shows up. And you're giving to and through your church 
for the proclamation of the gospel locally and globally. Perhaps some of you are still thinking and debating, like, maybe I should go. And if God's calling you in that direction, man, let's talk. But all of these questions that often we ask, whether it's about going or sending or giving or community or being baptized or serving, we often start with the wrong question. We say, so should I? No, 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 no. When we set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, we ask this question, when can I? But let's think about this application even in the church, excuse me, in the culture. I mean, you'd have to be under a rock to not be thankful and not notice that the best decision we've had in 50 years came about Friday, didn't it? Amen, church. Amen. That at least for a moment, the voice of moral sanity has spoken. I know it's only a first step. It hasn't outlawed anything. But it has returned things to the states where there is going to be, in many states, a much more conservative, life-protecting stance. We've got a long way to go. It's going to get probably harder. But on that issue of life, from conception to natural death, I mean, you need to know where God stands. And when you know where God stands, which that's where he stands, he's for life, he creates it, he knits us in our mother's womb, the psalm says. He's ordained all of our days. He's the owner and giver and authoritative master of life. When you know that, you'll stand there as well. You'll have a clear voice for the issue of our day. Think about the issue of the sexual ethic. And here I speak of things ranging from heterosexual Sin, homosexual sin, gender, marriage. You could just pick where you want to land on this. Ephesians 5, Romans 1, lay out for us God's sexual ethic. Let's learn it, let's know it, let's be committed to it. And with gentleness and respect, be able to give a reasoned answer for it. We don't need to feel like we're kind of trying to, you know, be fickle followers, wondering where does the culture land so we can figure out where we land. We know where to land because we know where God has landed. So let's just land there without fear. You see, when you settle that issue, when you internally align and are allegiant to Jesus, then, then you can be the kind of calm, kind, respectful, gentle, but firm voice in the culture. Even the issue lately, I think, especially is out of authority. We've been talking about it in our church, but it's an issue across our country. And I think it's been escalated and exacerbated in the last five years. Even for decades, we've seen our culture eroding parental authority. It's gotten worse in the last several years. I didn't think I would ever see the day that a culture would call for the disestablishment and the defunding of police. Like, I think that's ludicrous, even if you're not a believer. Like, here's what I think. I think if you're a lost person who's selfish and greedy and going for all the gusts they can get, wants to get rich and buy the largest house and the biggest boat, the nicest car, and just say, like, if you're that person, you still want police and firefighters to protect your stuff. Can I just be that frank with you? Like, they don't want to be open to robbery and thief. Like, the the greediest lost person is like, yeah, I'll, I want to be able to call the fire department. I want to call the police. I want the emergency personnel. Like, that's just... 
a, a thing that God put in us to be protective. It's called, the, you know, you, you tend to want to survive first, right? It is amazing to me to watch our culture actually try to erode every bit of authority. Civilizations cannot survive without ordered authority. And by the way, ordered authority is delegated authority from God, which is why this issue is so important. We will find a proper way to submit to earthly delegated authority when we know that we should submit to divine authority. So we should not be surprised that what we're seeing in our culture in regards to the police, the government, elected officials, just this constant state of rebellion when for years we've done everything we can to make sure that our culture knows, hey, there's no God. We've done all we can, not I say we, I mean as a citizen, our country, it seems like we've done all we can do to make sure that, that God is, is put out of everything. And now we wonder why there's this rebellion against authority. So, so here's what I'm saying to you, in the church and in the culture, we should settle the allegiance issue. We should set apart Christ in our hearts as holy because when that's done internally, it solves a host of things externally. This is what's needed in our churches. This is what's needed in our society. Men and women solely allegiant to Jesus. Let me close with one final illustration. It's the author of this book, Peter. You know, he wrote this phrase, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. You know, he, he wrote that. He wrote this entire section under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about being submissive and humble posture. Like he's written all this, right? But do you remember his life? I mean, he, he was always coming at authority. Even Jesus' authority. Remember when Jesus said, Peter, I'm going to the cross. He said, no, you're not. You're not doing that. We can't have that. I'm supposed to be vice president. Peter, James, and John, they're going to be next vice president. It's like, you can't die. I mean, who would tell Jesus what he can't do, right? Remember when um, Jesus washed their feet? Peter said, you're not washing my feet. Then he found out what it meant. He said, give me a bath. I mean, Peter's always kind of like pushing authority, isn't he? And then when Jesus was dying, after these three grand statements about how he would die with him, he's so afraid of the crowd that he can't even own up to who he is around a fire with folks who are just asking questions. Are, are you one of his? Peter's like, no, 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 that's not me. That's not me. Pushing back again. He was so adamant on the third denial that he cursed with an oath to try to convince them that he was telling the truth. Not long after that, the Bible says that Jesus caught eyes with Peter and that somewhere in that moment, Peter was so convicted that he left and began to weep in a bitter fashion. Something began to change in Peter. He had shown and exhibited disallegiance to the one who was dying for him. I don't think the whole matter was settled yet, though. He did go back to fishing, by the way. The Lord resurrected. And in those 40 days of 
post-resurrection appearances, we know there are three with Peter. In the last one, John 21, Peter sees Jesus on the shore and they're not catching fish and then Jesus says something to them and they catch a bunch of fish and Peter jumps out of the boat. He's swimming. That's Jesus. I've seen this before. He gets to the shore. There's breakfast prepared and they're talking. And Jesus asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? No doubt reminiscent of the three denials. On the last question, I think Peter, you read in John 21, he expresses like, he says to Jesus, hey, you know I love you. It's almost like he's saying, hey, I can't undo what I did. And you know my heart. So Jesus, I don't know what to say to you. You know I love you. Like, like this moment of like, I don't know what to do next. I've been this unfaithful, fickle guy, but I don't want to be that guy. Like, and so Jesus says to Peter in that moment, Peter, feed my sheep. And something flips in Peter in that time frame because 10 days later at Pentecost, Peter stands up and he has gone from a finger in the wind kind of runner. Man, he's a feet on the word kind of preacher. And he says to the very people who were probably around that fire were saying, hey, are you one of him? He says, you crucified Jesus. And there's only salvation in one name, the name of Jesus. And for much of the first part of Acts, Peter is the predominant preacher without any fickleness. Man, he is, he's, he's straight up coming at you hard. So when Peter writes these verses, it's coming from a guy who probably at one point hadn't settled the issue of who's Lord in my heart. But when he did, it made all the difference, didn't it? May we follow suit and see Jesus Christ as the crucified, risen King with all authority. And may we kneel in allegiance so that we can stand in action. Will you pray with me, please, church? All of our heads are bowed. Will you stand as well and let us, in a humble way, posture ourselves under King Jesus? Join me in prayer, would you, First Family? Oh, Holy Father, in your sovereign wisdom, you sent Jesus as the one and only Savior. We've seen that this morning in the songs we've sung and the text we've examined. Lord, you have, have wisely and perfectly ordained that Jesus would come at just the right time, fulfill all of the promises of the Old Testament, be crucified and be raised, and then be Lord. And Lord, he says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given unto me. And so, Heavenly Father, this morning, we worship and bow at the feet of King Jesus. We admit and we submit to all of his authority. We draw from this allegiance all of the motivation, the fuel, the filtering we need to make all of our external decisions. God, this morning, I pray that as we process this text, as we ponder this text, as we experience even now the moving of the Holy Spirit, the working of your spirit in our hearts, drawing people to the gospel, drawing believers to greater levels of submission and surrender. God, I pray that in this moment, there will be 
shouts of praise to your name, hailing you as King Jesus. God, be exalted in this place. Remove celebrities, dismantle humanness. And God, would you in this very moment lift up your son Jesus. And I pray we take a posture of surrender and internally align ourselves with the one and only Jesus Christ. To your name be glory forever and ever. Amen.